Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If we could, could we please open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It'll definitely be a climb. So seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountains and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who per- are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, uh, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we, we come before you and your holy word, and we ask, Lord, that our our eyes would be opened, our ears would be tuned to hear what your spirit says. God, don't let us have hard hearts. Please let us hear these words. You, don't, you didn't utter them just so that we could gloss over them, God. They're, they're food for our very soul. And so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to you now. We just want to thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, Matthew chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7 begin what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is because in verses 1 and 2, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and opened his mouth and taught them. And so we left off last week uh, with Jesus going throughout Galilee. And he was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. And because of the authority of the words and the works of Jesus Christ, people were coming from everywhere to Jesus. So not only in in the Galilee region, but also down in Jerusalem, then Syria, uh, you know, up up north and then over beyond the Jordan, which is modern day, obviously Jordan. People were coming from everywhere and Jesus was healing tons of diseases. And because of this, as we end up here in Matthew 5, all the crowds were following him. He leaves the crowds now and he decides to go teach his disciples and he goes up to a mountain. Uh, the mountain that Matthew is talking about is thought to be on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just north of, well, that would be east of Capernaum. Um, in what is above what is called the plain of Gennesaret, there's a picture from the top there. Obviously, how many of you have taken a picture from somewhere and it's like, you just don't get it. It's like, it's just not. Yeah. Anyways, that's like a, that's a four mile uphill type of a thing. And you just come to this grassy top up there. Anyways, a uh, few, few of us have been there. It's, it's beautiful, different depending on time of year that you're there. But it's important to know that Jesus isn't teaching the masses here. He's pulling his disciples up alone, and he is teaching them. And he sits down, as teachers did in those days. <clears throat> uh, you know, teachers sat down and the students stood. I don't know how that got flipped around. Uh, but Verse two says, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. That is his disciples. And so the Sermon on the Mount, he starts, this is, you know, we're only going to go through the first 12 verses today, but it goes all the way from five to 12. So he's spending a long time talking about the kingdom with his, with his guys. 
And while this is one of the most prolific sections of scripture, prolific teachings, it's also the most fundamental. Listen, church, we need to know this. We need to understand it. This is foundational for the kingdom. This is foundational for a believer. And so to begin this epic sermon, Jesus begins in verses 3 through 12 with what are called the Beatitudes. Uh, And the reason they're called the Beatitudes is because the word uh, Beatitude describes a state of utmost bliss. It means, oh, how happy. And this is because Jesus begins his teaching with the word blessed, repeated nine times in this section. Blessed means, oh, how happy, or "What what a state of bliss is the person, and then he goes on to describe these people who are in God's eyes in a state of bliss, in a state of blessing. And he begins in verse three by saying to his disciples, the very first thing that he utters to his disciples as he's teaching, and this is important because usually the first thing is, is what is foundational to everything else. He says there, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I am going to get through all 12 verses this morning. You could spend, we could, I mean, if you want to, we could spend, you're like, what in the world? Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is foundational throughout all of scripture. We could go tons of places and spend a long time on this. And I encourage you to study this out, but I'm just going to give a cursory overview. So please forgive me if I, if I leave out a lot, it's on purpose. And by the way, God's still teaching me. Amen. Amen. But he says they're blessed. He repeats it nine times there. He says, Oh, what a state of bliss is the person who is poor in spirit. And Jesus begin describes in verse three, basically what a child of God is. And we're going to see that theme picked up later. He goes in, in, when Jesus kind of does all these teachings and he says, so too, you will be children of, of, of your father in heaven. If you do all these things type of thing. And so this is really describing here in these verses, what a ch- child of God is like, what a believer is like, what are the attributes of a child of God? And the first key to God's blessing upon a person, Jesus zeroes in on that state of a person's heart before God. We often look at a person's social status. We look at a person's race. We look at a person's where they grew up, what they went through, uh, how successful they are in whatever economy they're in. We often look at their position. We often look at their status, their abilities, as and the apex, at the apex of all that are the people who are really blessed. Now we might not use that word in our our our, our economy of words here, but uh, we might go, man, that person has arrived. That person is blessed. That person has received the top of either the cream of the crop. Not so in the kingdom of God. That's not how God evaluates things. It isn't the self-sufficient, the confident, the prideful, the successful, the rich, the ones with status, the kings of the earth, the politicians who have power, nor the poorest of the poor who is prideful, all that type of stuff. God doesn't grade on the scale we do. We look at happiness as something to be attained and, and we're marketed in these ways and we're shown, oh, this is what, this is how you get to happiness, everybody. Well, God has a different view of that. Jesus sits his disciples down and goes, I want you to know this, that blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses this word poor here to paint a picture in the minds of his disciples because poverty was all around them. Remember at one point Jesus says, you know, I'm only with you for a little bit, but you're going to have the poor with you always. The poor were always there. And if you go into those parts of the world, there's a lot of poor people. There's a lot of poor people here. But Jesus uses, as he often does, something that was a reality around them in the physical world. You know, they do farming or economics or whatever it might be to paint a picture of a spiritual reality. And so here he goes and goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word poor here is the idea of being absolutely destitute. That's what the word means. It means someone is unable to provide for oneself. Uh, Strong's Greek lexicon says it holds the idea of being reduced to beggary, destitute of wealth, destitute of influence, destitute of position, and honor, lowly, afflicted, helpless, powerless to accomplish an end. That's kind of the word picture that Jesus is using here to describe the word for poor. The word poor is used to describe the widow in Matthew chapter 12, who gives her two mites. And, she, and Jesus says she gave more than everyone else because she gave out of her poverty. That's what she was. She was impoverished physically in the state she was in. The point being that Jesus is saying that the person is truly blessed in God's eyes is the one who is totally poor in spirit. He takes something we all can kind of relate to and he goes, it's not that. It's like that, but it's in here. You've got nothing. You're empty. You're poor. You have no way out. You're destitute. You're bankrupt. You're in debt. And really what this describes here right off the bat, and I'm emphasizing this one, is because this describes someone who has encountered God. A person who encountered God, uh, encounters God, they experience a poverty of spirit. When God begins to move in a person's life, they become keenly aware of their poverty within their soul before him. We're not comparing ourselves to everybody else. That's too easy. But when you come in contact with the living God, you realize that you're a beggar. Isaiah experienced this. Remember Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, he was in the temple of the Lord and the Lord, the angels were crying out, holy, holy, holy. And as he's in the presence of God and his glory fills the temple, he's before the holiness of God and the angels that are crying out and, and he sees him. And Isaiah comes in the presence of the Lord. And he says there in verse five of Isaiah six, he says, woe is me. He's just like, man, woe is me for I am, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you really encounter God right off the bat, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to show you how dark you really are. And it's not pretty. How many of us enjoy having our sin exposed and our darkness exposed and all these types of things. But nevertheless, this is what Jesus says. The very first thing to his disciples. There's a breaking that has to happen. 
And this is a work of God. The Apostle Paul cried out. Man, the Apostle Paul wrote the New Testament, pretty much, right? What did he say there in Romans 7, 24? Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? This is the Apostle Paul. I mean, if you want to know theology, if you want to know how church works, if you want to know Jesus, you've seen Jesus. Oh, he's seen Jesus. He just, man, so undone. You see, when God begins to work in a person's life, there's an immediate consciousness of one's sinfulness before him, a poverty of spirit, an abject, total poverty of soul, no ability to get yourself out of your sin, no status before God, no pride, no position, undeserving before God Almighty. God strikes at the heart of the pride of men with his very presence of who he is. And what Jesus says to that person, you are blessed. You have reason to be happy. You have reason to rejoice if that has been your encounter with God, if you've come to him and he's come to you and exposed you for who you truly are because the light has shined in your life. Because it's actually God who's brought you to that place. The light shining in darkness where you actually see with the eyes that he sees with. You actually hear his voice. You're convicted in your soul. This is a blessed place to be in. It's not the end place. It's the beginning. Amen. Amen. He says to that person, theirs is the kingdom. Have you had that with the Lord? Not only have you had that, are you there? I don't think this is a one time thing. <laughs> I think there's a, well, we'll get into that. But he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and what's interesting is you go into the Greek, the word kingdom is the word. Uh, it's something like basilia. I keep thinking basilica because it's the same idea. Yeah, it's basilia. It means royal power, kingship, dominion, rule. Blessed are the impoverished in spirit for yours is the royal power, the kingship, the dominion, the rule. Isn't that wild? The poor in spirit, God moves from poverty to the palace. That's what he does. Who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven? The poor in spirit. Not the prideful, not the way men work. And that's a work of God. And that's what the first several verses of this beatitude describe here. The attributes of those who are children of God. And he begins here firstly with those who are poor in spirit. Church, don't medicate this away. Don't counsel this out of your life. Quite often, we, we don't want to experience the conviction of God over our failures in our lives and our sin. When God is trying to get a hold of you and wake you up 
to his very presence. It begins there. We don't want to feel that. We want to push that away. Let it come. Cry out before God. Let him do a deep work of cleansing in your heart. Let his spirit convict you of sin. And when that happens, as God brings you to the place of spiritual poverty before him, you begin to mourn over who you are and what you've done in your state before him. Blessed, verse 4, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If this seems upside down, you're right. This is the upside down kingdom, which is actually right side up. We're living upside down. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Another seemingly contradictory statement. Happy are those who mourn. We don't associate those who mourn as those who are being blessed, do we? Jesus says, oh, how happy are those who mourn. This is describing mourning over our sinful state before God. We talked about this. Again, when the Holy Spirit comes, it says, Jesus, I'll I'll send my spirit into the world. What will he do? He will convict people of sin, of righteousness, and the judgment of God, the judgment to come. He convicts us over our sinfulness before God, our unrighteousness, of the righteousness of Christ and the judgment to come. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's one of the works of the Holy Spirit in lives. And he comes and does that to us. And so as we're convicted in, of, of, of our sin and, and of God's holiness and righteousness and the impending judgment upon us, we, we sense that, right? What is that to do? It's to wake us up. It's to cause us to mourn and repent. This is what John the Baptist was crying out. Repent, repent. And they go, what shall we do? As they're deeply concerned about the wrath of God coming. Why would God use these things? Why would he talk about such things in starkness? And why isn't it all rainbows and unicorns and fluffy, happy things all the time? Because it begins with the hard thing. It begins with the cross. It begins with repentance. It begins with conviction. And his grace when it comes upon on a person, it comes on, came on my heart, it comes on your heart. What happens is we come poor in spirit. We begin to mourn over our sin, man. God, why am I like this? Why did I do that? God, I've got this in my heart. Why do I think like that? Why do I act like that? I can't believe what I've done to X, Y, Z people. Anybody have those conversations as God begins to convict you? And notice it doesn't stop at conversion when you first come to the Lord. It continues. Amen? Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? It's a continual thing as we live in the presence of a holy God. In the light of his holiness, God convicts us because he's good and he's glorious. And we begin to mourn over our sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, if you're taking notes, he, he gives us a glimpse into this godly mourning. Although he's talking to believers, like I said, this is an ongoing thing. They had experienced a godly sorrow, a godly mourning. He had reprimanded them in the first epistle. If you read 1 Corinthians, it's like, man, what's the good part of this thing? The whole thing's good. But I mean, he's, he's systematically clocking them. Like he just keeps, he keeps going for one thing after another that's going wrong in the church and he's correcting, he's lovingly encouraging them, but he's, he's really putting a heavy hand to this church who's in sin. 
And then he goes in 2 Corinthians and he writes back, there's a bunch of letters. There's actually 1 Corinthians, then there are 1 Corinthians, and there's 2 Corinthians, then there's a letter we have back. I won't explain all that. We'll do that on the Bible class. But he says there in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did, though I did regret it, for I see that you, uh, that letter grieved you, though only for a while. He's saying, and I hate that you were hurting, but I, I know it's for the right reason, right, that I wrote this. He didn't avoid the difficult conversation. Verse 9, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a kind of grief that we can have. It's like, darn it, I got caught and I've got to suffer the consequences. That's not what he's talking about. It's a godly grief that we are convicted and we mourn over what we've done and it causes us to change. It causes us to repent and move in the right direction. Parents, isn't this what you want to see in your kids? God wants to see it in us. Amen? Amen. Because on for, for what earnestness this godly grief is produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. He's saying, you heard what I said. It hurt to the heart, but you knew it was in love and you responded accordingly. You changed what you did and you, you didn't just leave. You, let, you didn't leave any stone unturned. You kept going, kept going, kept going until things were set right. Godly sorrow. So too is the child of God, not one who is one who is poor, is not only poor in spirit, but they mourn over their sin. Amen. It's okay to mourn over your sin. It's actually what God calls you to do. Jesus calls that person to rejoice. Why? Because what? You're going to be comforted. <laughs> God does not convict you of your sin to leave you in at church. Amen. Amen. To bring you out of it. Amen. The conviction and the, the sorrow you have over your sin is, is a godly sorrow, and it's to lead us to repentance. And to, when we respond in this way, it's actually the Holy Spirit who comes in and comforts us like a parent after being disciplined. Amen? Amen. The comforter, he comes and comforts. He reassures us that we're his. He reassures us we're on the right path. He restores fellowship, all these types of things. And so the child of God sorrows over sin and is comforted by God. This leads to verse five. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. We're going to pick up the pace. Oh, how happy are the meek. Now the word meek here describes someone who is gentle and humble. There's several different words. It's hard to translate it. Meekness is not weakness. Um, it is someone who is gentle and humble. And, and that is what describes someone who this in, in the spirit of God dwells. Jesus was the meekest man. Moses was a meek man. Meekness is not weakness. It's, it's described as someone being willy, willfully submitted to authority. And that's the idea. Sometimes it's, it's used as a picture of, a, of an animal that has a wild spirit in it that's been broken. 
and trained and it's, it's, it's training. It, it hears the voice of God and it responds to that. I've shared the story of before, uh, Don McClure shared a story, um, as a cavalry pastor about, uh, how he had dogs and one of his dogs wouldn't listen to him. And so he had to be kept on a leash the whole time. But one of his dogs listened to him and was trained. And so he could take him off the leash because whenever he called, he would come. He was submitted. He was gentle. He was under God's authority. And, and really it describes authority under control. And so this describes a believer, one who is poor in spirit, who is mourned over their sin, who is now meek. They have a great cause to be happy for theirs is the kingdom. They're going to be comforted and they will inherit the earth. Do you know who's going to populate God's kingdom? The meek. Could you imagine if we had a planet of gentle, humble people? Don't you long for that in your heart? Don't you long to be that in your heart? Don't you long for God to do that in you and around you? To live in the midst of a people who are gentle and humble, that we would be that for one another? Those are the people that will inherit the earth. New heavens, new earth. I would say during thousand year reign as well, right? That's who's going to populate the planet. That's amazing. That sounds like heaven to me. Verse six, but so are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied or shall be filled. God's children hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not only are we poor in spirit, not only do we mourn over our sin, not only are we humble and meek, but guess what? Disciples, children of God, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is something God does in a person. And Jesus uses, again, something elementary. How many of you hunger and thirst? Yeah. He's taking something that's just totally elemental in our lives. He's saying, when you are born again, when God is in your life, when you're a child of God, you're going to start to hunger and thirst for spiritual things. You're going to hunger and thirst for what God has created for you to have nourishment. You're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. This Hunger and thirst is a God brought desire in a person's heart for God to do in us what his will is and around us what his will is. Right. Which is all righteous. When God is God is at work in you, you're going to desire what he wants righteousness. And so we desire his righteousness in us. That is in our attitudes. You know, uh, there is an imputed righteousness and there's a, a worked out righteousness there. Uh, an imputed righteousness is Christ's rightness before God. And so when we come to God and he cleanses us of our sins and we're born again, we get Christ's righteousness in us. And we begin to long for those things of the kingdom. But then it also is worked out in righteous deeds. And that's what this is talking about. We, we hunger and thirst for righteousness that not only God's will, will be done in us, but through us and around us. Amen. Amen. In our heart, in our attitudes, and we would want his aspirations, his attitudes, his heart, and not only in us, but in around, around us. Like the basic drive we all have for food and drink. This is the basic drive in the heart of the life of a believer that righteousness would be in us and around us. And Jesus says to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. You're blessed because God wants to answer that prayer. 
That's the business that God is in. This is all wrapping back to John 15. Abide in me and I abide in you. Let my word abide in you. And guess what? You're going to ask my will and I'll do it for you. I'll ask my father in heaven. He'll do it for you. You're going to prove yourself to be my disciples bearing much fruit. That's very paraphrased, but you get the idea, right? I hunger and thirst. I long for what you want, God. May it be done. Do we want to have a powerful church, not for our name's sake, but that God would be glorified? Broken spirit, mourn over sin. Let God's humility work in our hearts. Ask God that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Seek his will. Ask for it. Begin to pray in that manner for what he wants above what we want. And we're going to watch God work because those are the prayers he answers. Not that he doesn't care about our needs. We already know that. But our church mission statement is to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Again, what does that mean? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your will be done on heaven, in heaven as it is on earth. I mean, the other way around. Earth as it is in heaven. A desire to have God's will be done. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. A child of God, God is going to be merciful. We're going to be, we're to be a merciful people. Now I like the de- definition of mercy. You know, what's the difference between mercy and grace and, and these things there's, there's semantics there. Um, but the definition of mercy that I like is, is not getting what we deserve. That's, that's kind of the one, that's my go-to. Grace would be more getting what we don't deserve in the positive, right? So mercy, God withholding wrath from us, withholding certain things from us that we, we rightfully deserve in the negative. And so a person who's poor in spirit, who's mourned over their sin, who has a, a picture of God's holiness and who he is and God's working in their life, and we've received such mercy from God... We are going to be merciful to others. You know, quite often what God asks us to do and teaches us to do, he's already done to us. Isn't that amazing? You notice that? Go forgive others. Well, why should I do that? Because I forgave you. But they wronged me. Oh, yeah, I totally get you. So go to them. Now they got to come to me. No, you go to them. Why? Because I did that for you, remember? Yeah, be like me. These are hard things. These are kingdom things. These are upside down things. Right side up, right? God has been so merciful to us. And so too, true children of God are those who are merciful to others. I like what MacArthur points out. He says that, uh, that it is not saying that extending mercy to men is going to guarantee mercy from men. He calls us to be merciful with one another. It doesn't mean that they're going to be merciful back that the world's going to be merciful to you. This is a one directional one way type of thing. You be merciful and you will receive mercy. Now it's interesting. This kind of leads to the conundrum. Do I get mercy because I was merciful or because I'm merciful by nature? Am I the ones who have received mercy? And this is the whole wonderful thing. I don't know. I like Matthew 18 that kind of remember that Matthew 18. He's talking about the Jesus. Well, how many, well, Peter says, how many times do I forgive this guy? 
Seven times seven, no, 70 times seven. He goes into a parable. The wicked servant there uh, shown mercy, but then went off and, and didn't show mercy to others, right? He was forgiven such a great debt. And then he goes and starts to extract the debt from someone who owed him nothing compared to what he owed the master, the king. And the king finds out about it and he grabs him and he throws him in jail and says, you're not getting out until you pay off every last debt. And the idea behind it is he can't pay it out. He can't pay it off. And he ends, Jesus ends this parable by saying in verse 35 of Matthew 18, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. However you read it, the merciful will receive mercy. We are to be a merciful people, just as God was merciful with us. And I believe it is because God is merciful to us that we are merci merciful to others. That's. But blessed, oh, how happy are the merciful. Why? Because God's going to be merciful with you. How many of you guys need a little mercy? Not getting what you deserve? Anyone? Uh, some of you aren't raising your hands. I'll be merciful with you right now. Just kidding. <laughs> children, God's children are merciful children. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Flip over to Psalm 24. Open the middle of your Bible. Just grab the middle of your Bible. Open it up. Usually you head somewhere around Psalms. Psalm 24. Verses three through six. Jesus isn't pulling this stuff out of thin air. All of it's rooted in the Old Testament. I haven't brought a lot of it out yet, but it's here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place or his holy mountain? Who? He who has clean hands and a what? Pure heart. Well, what does that look like? He does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully or lift up his hands to idols. Uh, verse five, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, God of Jacob. Jesus echoes this. Oh, how happy are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, we already know from verse three, we're dealing with those who are poor in spirit. And so this is not a purity that comes from us. This is a purity that's been imputed to us, right? First of all, there's no purity that we have. We all sheep like a gone astray. We know we don't create purity within ourselves. This is an act of God upon us. He cleanses us. He puts his spirit in us. We're born again by his spirit. We're justified and sanctified and all those types of things by a, just a sovereign grace of God. But then that purity is not just a just is not just a, a one time deal that he purifies us. Now we live a life of purity before God. That's what this is speaking about. The holiness that we've received is now worked out in our lives. That's the idea here. The practiced holiness, the purity. This is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, are we perfect? No, we're not. First uh, John 1, 9, you know, if you confess your sins to God and he'll cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness. John says, he who says he doesn't have sin, man, you're a liar. 
We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. But we come, we respond to the spirit of God and we ask him to cleanse us. And so there's a purity in our lives. There's a trajectory. There's a a longing to follow God in our lives. And we live a life and we live a life. We keep in step with the Holy Spirit, not grieving the spirit. We see God. And and, and the reason why I say we see God is because it's not only in the future tense. It's now moving forward. We see God moving. When you live a holy life, you get to see God work. And not only do you get to see God work around you and in you and all those types of things, you get to see God on that day. And so it's a big picture deal there. As the tense of that word, it's not just future. It's now into the future. So the pure in heart will see God at work now and will see him face to face on that day. We're moving along. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Romans five, one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate peace that needs to happen is between us and God, between sinful man and God. God has brought us peace through his son. We were at war. We were at enmity with God and he made peace with us through his son. Amen. Yes. Now, just as God came to us when we were far off, when we were enemies, when we were in rebellion, when we were uh, not following him and all these types of things, he made peace through us through our son. So too, we now are those who are peacemakers. The peace we have been given, we now go extend. We preach the gospel, church. And yes, this obviously extends into circumstances. But the ultimate peace comes through the gospel, desiring to be those who bring the gospel of peace to those who are the enemies of God. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we love because he first loved us. We want people to have peace with God. Don't you? I don't want to see people spent spend eternity apart from him in hell. And God saved you and was merciful to you and brought and gave you peace so that you could now go extend that to others. You're the olive branch (laughs) that God has put into the sphere of those around you. The idea is that the children of God, we mimic him. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And if we're his children, we follow. He says there, Blessed are those who are peacemakers for you shall be called sons of God. Daughters of God will be where we're kid, God's kids. You never notice how your kids mimic you for better, for worse. Yeah. This is important to remember here that the things that God often calls us to the things he's done for us. Now that really ends the picture of the image of the children of God part. And now in the next few verses, It extends now to how does the world respond to the children of God? How does that happen when you are poor in spirit, uh, when you mourn over your sin, when you're a person who's meek and hungering and thirst for righteousness, when you're merciful, when you're pure in heart, when you're a peacemaker in the ways that God is describing here? Well, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another paradox. Oh, how happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How many of you like to get persecuted? It's not about liking it, but there's a, there's a mindset in it. He wants us to have as his disciples. 
You know, persecution doesn't seem to conjure up the thought of being blessed. Yet Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Notice he doesn't say for being a weird Christian. Yeah. Some of us are weird. Like you just go, oh, my gosh, like that's not a great representative of Christ. Oh, I'm getting persecuted. Thank you, God, for the persecution. No, you're getting persecuted because you're weird. Stop that. Don't be a weird Christian. Amen. That's not what he's talking about. Being persecuted for being poor in spirit, for being convicted by the Holy Spirit, by following after him, by being light in the darkness, by being a changed person. What happens is that light in you now begins to convict other people of their darkness and they take that out on you. That's what he's talking about. Or Jesus says in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Key part in that whole deal. When a person is changed by Jesus and is falling after Jesus, you're living obedient to Jesus, to the glory of God. His light is shining in you and through you in a very dark world. And you are to expect persecution. You expect the darkness to not like the light. Amen. I mean, how many of you think back in your day when you were living in darkness and you loved your darkness, when you saw someone who was light and they started, you know, ruining your style by how they were leaving or they were living and they're always leaving tracks for you, praying for you and trying to share Jesus with you. It's like, oh, you freak, get out of here. You know, it's like, leave me alone in my darkness. Don't convict me of these things. This is what will happen to John the Baptist as he is preaching the word and he's going to convict the heart of the leaders in the country and what's going to happen is Herod's going to take his head. Expect persecution in the form of reviling, he says here, and, and what, what they say. Uh, there's going to be things said against you. There's going to be insults, is the idea there, to your face. Expect to be insulted. Disciples of Jesus Christ, children of God. Slightly different from uttering all kinds of evil against you, which has to do with gossip and slander behind your back. They're not only going to say it to your face, they're going to do it behind your back and try to undermine your character. And we know that that really doesn't go on in our society too much. <laughs> Need I say the word Twitter? <laughs> And sandwiched in between those two is persecution. That has the idea of physical persecution and harassment and abuse hurled at you. Plan on the world striking out at you. But Jesus says, oh, how happy when that happens. He says, rejoice. He says, you're blessed when this is happening. Why? When it happens on his account, it's because they're ultimately persecuting him. It is his life in you that they hate. His work in you, his light in you, and his word. It's a cause for rejoicing. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 18 through 21. Good, good. You know, John 15, flip over there. 18 through 21, make notes. He says, if the world hates you, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is him talking to his disciples. Imagine if Jesus was just sitting here talking to you going, 
Hey, church, CCF, I know you love me and you're following me. I know it's hard, but realize if the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Boy, that's convicting. Does the world love you as its own? Hmm. Be- but because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore remember the, the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the words that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, did they persecute Jesus? Did they say a bunch of things about with him? Did they try to push him off cliffs? Did they try to kill him? Did they actually crucify him? Yes. The false witnesses, all that type of stuff. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Some will, some won't. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know God. They haven't been struck with the poorness of spirit and haven't mourned over their sin. They haven't, they don't know God. His love, his forgiveness, his son, the cross. Not only that, the life and the power and the calling and the empowerment to live for him. The persecution of a follower is Jesus's is ultimately because they don't know God and they reject the son. They reject the father. So what happens to Jesus? What happened to Jesus will happen to some of us. He says, Jesus says, when that happens, you're blessed. Why? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said to his disciples, when you're reviled, when you're persecuted, when they say all kinds of evil about you because of me, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Wow. God rewards us children. Amen. Amen. I'm one of the children, right? Children of God. So because of this, there's a great joy. There's an inexplicable joy. Read Peter's epistle there. It's counterintuitive joy that should fill the heart of a believer. Because when you're persecuted on his account, not for being weird, it validates that we're his. It validates that we're his. And his reward and his reward awaits us. And this is exactly what happens in Acts five. Flip over there as we close here. Acts five, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel. Right. Right. And that night, an angel broke them out and he said, go back and preach. And so they went back into the temple square and they started preaching. How do you think the religious leaders like that? You broke out of prison and just did the thing we arrested you for. Told you not to preach in his name anymore. And they wanted to kill them as they arrest Peter and John again. And they get him there and Gamaliel starts to kind of calm them and says, Hey man, we might be going against God here. Chill out. So just, they just whipped him. And so verse 40 and 42 says, and so they took Gamaliel's advice 40 through 42. And, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And then they left the presence of the council. And what were they doing? Rejoicing Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name for him. Do you love Jesus more than you love life? Hmm. And 
And they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They didn't stop church. They didn't stop. They didn't let the darkness overcome the light. They kept shining. They kept shining. Don't let Satan it out, right? Man, what a mindset. They were rejoicing and they were in great company just as they persecuted the prophets before them, right? They didn't stop. They kept doing what God had called them to do. Church, if indeed we are the church, if we are indeed the children of God, if we're poor in spirit, if we're mourning over sin, if we're meek, we're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, if we are merciful people, if we are people who seek to be pure in heart and peacemakers, we have great cause to rejoice. We have a state of bliss from God's perspective because God has worked that in and among us. We are his kids. We're his people. And that should not be contained in this room. It cannot be contained in this room. Don't be afraid of the darkness, church. Shine. Shine. Rejoice in persecution for his namesake. For his namesake, church. Amen. We'll get there, but as we close here, Matthew 10, 16-33, I'm going to read this for you. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Notice God is at work even in their suffering and persecution. It says, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what uh, you are to say will be given to you at that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. God has. How many of us are avoiding persecution because we just don't want to get hurt and we don't want to ruffle the waves. We don't want to do all this type of stuff. Listen, we're missing out on God's opportunity to be a witness in darkness. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. I mean, these are not low stakes odds here. Betrayal at the deepest levels, family, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one endorsed to the end will be saved. Believers believe. When they persecute you, in one town, flee to the next. For, for truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, or Lord of Flies, or Lord of Dung, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Underline that verse 20. So have no fear of them. Put the person you're afraid of, put the entity you're afraid of, put the situation you're afraid of. I think we need to put our fear in the proper order. Fear God. So have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, what I tell you on Sunday morning, even Say in the light, 
and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. We need to have a healthy fear of God, church, in this age. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one of them, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Who's in control of the circumstances? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. And so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father who is in heaven. No asterisks there. No halfway. Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Gosh, where, where is our theology? For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Is this cutting deep? And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Why? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's in chapter 10. If we are indeed his children, his children, his church, and this is our time. This is our time. Our time to shine in the darkness. Let the sword come. Let it divide. Don't fear. Glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Trust him and watch him work. Amen. Lord, your words are heavy. You strike at what we love. And I feel so often so blind in my understanding of your ways. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for teaching us the ways of the kingdom. Be merciful to us, Father. Open our eyes and our hearts to your ways, to your kingdom. And Lord, we just come to you now and just admit our poverty before you. There's nothing we can do, Lord. We need you to work. Cleanse, forgive, act, change hearts, teach us. And so we just are humbled before you. And we ask for your work to be done in and through us, in and through our families, in and through those we love. May you be above all. Teach us to follow you. 
And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Yeah. It cuts when you handle it. Amen. God bless you guys. You're loved. Amen. All right.